Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Stand Up Tragedy is a live show and podcast that's been running for three years now and we've recorded loads and loads of tragic variety because what we do is we get people to come along to the show and stand up and do tragedy and we get people from a variety of different parts of the arts we've got comedians storytellers musicians spoken word artists and more and they come together to look at the sadder things in life with some laughs as well as some tears and we're taking a break from our live shows until february 2015 so to fill in the gap on the podcast we're putting together some special episodes that really celebrate what we think stand-up tragedy is about and showcase some of the amazing performances that we've got over the last few years. So today we bring you Selected Tragedy Volume 5, Tragic Christmas. This is an edited down version of our tragic Christmas show that we had at the Dog Star in Brixton last year as a fundraiser for the really important organization charity activist thing arts emergency which does really important work and i would urge you to donate or get involved with what they do they basically are all about providing access to the arts and humanities for people who do not come from privileged backgrounds and helping them to enter into our arts and we believe in that stand-up tragedy because we believe in the arts and the arts will only be brilliant and interesting and powerful if they have all of the voices speaking in them and at the moment they don't have all the voices and we try to get more of the voices up on our stage but the best way to have more voices talking to us and to have more people to listen to is to get those people able to have access to make art and to study the humanities and all of these things that are important to us as a culture the best way is to help them to help us we don't live in a fair society Arts Emergency is set up to try and redress that balance. You can help by donating to them. You can also help by donating your time, being a mentor, providing contacts to kids coming up as part of what they call the Alternative Old Boys Network. You can join and be a part of that. I'm that. You can do that. Why not do that? That doesn't cost you any money. doesn't even cost you that much time. So for people like me who are not that money rich and not that time rich, you can still do that if you're in the arts and you can help people. Come on, please try. The rest of this show will not have me narrating it. It's all going to be pretty much live. Today's episode is the selected best cuts of the turkey but the rest of the turkey was also juicy to eat i would like to put a very strong content note on this episode there will be discussion of suicide there will be discussion of violence against children there will be discussion of lots of sad things really because christmas can be a time when sad things happen and that's one of the reasons that the show worked so well because it was kind of all about darkness but also about the light like it was a very strong show i think it's not all doom and gloom though really the show is not all doom and gloom and it has some really really excellent stuff so if you can stomach it please please do it's really worth your time it's got a really scary 
Victorian story. It's got a beautiful story that the comedian Beck Hill wrote specially for the show. Happy Christmas to everybody that have complicated experiences of Christmas like I do. And happy Christmas to everybody else. Tonight, we are in the middle of the winter, or the start of the winter, really. It's only started to get really chill just the last few days. But I felt like it was a good time to start a show with this quote from Brecht, (laughs) uh, which goes, In the dark times, will there also be singing? Yes, there will be singing about the dark times. And it's the winter, and it is dark outside, Uh, but I think we can all agree that it's quite dark time in the country, it's a dark time in the world maybe, and what we do at Stand Up Tragedy is we look at that darkness uh, in order to have a cathartic experience and feel a little bit better, kind of get to understand that darkness a little bit better. And that's what we're going to be doing tonight. It's a particularly tragic time of the year uh, because it's winter. Uh, it's Christmas coming up as well. I don't know how people feel about Christmas in the room. Uh, let's just do a little test of that. Uh, let's, who loves Christmas? Uh, do a cheer if you love Christmas. Fair enough. Uh, and it, give a cheer if you hate Christmas. Well, no, no booze, but a couple... No, uh, booze don't count as cheers, do they? So I guess there's like one person. Uh, give a cheer if you feel very, very complicated and ambiguous about Christmas. Yay! Yeah, that's me too. Uh, you'll see why throughout the night. Uh, so, as I'll be sharing my Christmas memories with you. Um, the thing is about Christmas, everyone thinks it's a very happy time, obviously, and, and a baby is born who's going to save the world if you believe in that, that stuff, which is fair enough if you do. But if you remember... It wasn't just about that baby being born. It was also about millions and millions of other babies being killed. So so when you're celebrating Christmas, uh, have a little cheers for King Herod and uh, the tragedy of Christmas. Wow, yeah, there you go. And the other thing about it being Christmas coming up, I was thinking about this particularly because it's a a charity uh, gig for Arts Emergency, is that kind of, at the moment... We're sort of governed by a government of Scrooges who have never got good. I don't know if people are going to feel me on that one, but I mean, like when 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 Scrooge when, when Scrooge says, you know, uh, don't they have workhouses? Well, now they say, don't they have workfare? You know, that's basically for me uh, where we're at. So I feel like we should really embrace and explore the tragedy of this government and uh, wherever we can, and maybe. Uh, do our bit to get rid of it, uh, hopefully. So, which brings me on to the organisation who we are raising money for today. Uh, you've, paid, you've paid to get in, and that's helped them. Arts Emergency uh, are an organisation who are committed to uh, basically changing the way that, that the arts work, in that we've got gatekeepers, I'm, I'm sure many of you will agree on that, that there is a barrier for many people who have not got the money or the uh, education or various other things that, that you need to get a foot in the door of the arts. And what Arts Emergency does is they are trying to pull that gate wide open and allow everybody to get through that gate. Uh, so you should definitely check them out at arts-emergency.org. If we're going to be staring into the dark heart of Christmas, we should at least keep warm together. Uh, and that's really what tonight is about. It's a cathartic journey. We're going to have a sing-along at the end. We will go to dark places, but we will also go to happy places. So 
open your heart for both and I hope you enjoy the show. Would, would like everybody to put their hands together for our first performer tonight. Put your hands together for Dave, everybody. Hi, I'm Dave. <laughs> Thanks for the unnecessary heckle to start. So I'm going to do a really serious true story so the heckling might want to stop. Um, so... <laughs> One thing I realised about Christmas is, I mean, I may have had happy Christmases growing up, but I, uh, I can't remember any because of this story, I think. Uh, there may have been happy Christmases before this story, but this, to me, is where Christmas starts. So all the presents are arranged around the tree, and it's Christmas Day, and... I am eight years old, eight or nine, and it's my job to uh, go around the tree, pick up the presents, and give them out to the members of the family. That's my job. I don't mind the job. It's an okay job. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm giving out the presents to the family. Now, the mood and the atmosphere in that room is not very Christmassy. It's very tense. You see... What happened is the family moved to a place called Coventry in the, in the Midlands. Now, I don't want to diss Coventry. I have done in the past. I'm not going to do it today, not just because there are uh, people from the middle of uh, the country in the room, but also because it's unfair to diss Coventry for the experiences that I had there. But the thing is that when we moved to Coventry, my family split into two places. There was my dad's house in a flat, in fact, a flat which was in a very bleak area of Coventry called Stoke Aldermore, which is kind of like uh, very, very bleak. That's a good way to describe it, you know, like there was a rock violas barking all day long, you know, and there was broken windows all the time and the local shop, the Asian shopkeeper, was repeatedly hounded out for, for being uh, Asian and uh, it was a nasty area. But the, my dad's flat was like an oasis in that that area of Coventry. My mum's flat, where I spent majority of my time, uh, was, you know, it was a, a suburban road. It wasn't that bad, a, a, an area. But the atmosphere inside the house was not very good. Uh, my mum and my stepdad basically were in the process of a protracted sort of four or five years ripping a part of their marriage. And the, the house had very thin walls, so all of their arguments that happened could be heard by me and my, my little sister uh, every night. And that's the context that this Christmas was happening in. When I think about Coventry, I think about the two cathedrals. Uh, there's a new cathedral and there's the old cathedral that was bombed in the war. And the new cathedral is very beautiful and... Uh, and modern and new and it's like a, everything about it it's an instrument like it's actually the whole building is an instrument uh, whereas the old cathedral is a ruin that was bombed during the war and, and, and when I think of my those two houses those two places I grew up in during that time I think of them as like the old and new cathedral these two different extremes these two different shades of my life so I'm giving out the presents and I'm doing my job, and I you know, haven't opened my presents yet at all. I'm waiting to do that. I'm going to give out all the presents first. And I f sort of give out the presents, and then my mum says, you haven't given out all the presents. And I 
I look around and I, there's a present just right round the back of the uh, Christmas tree. So I sort of pull it out and it's the last present. So I look at it and it looks like it says Dave. So I open it up and it's a Mars bar. Now, I don't really like Mars bars that much at the time or now. Uh, but, I, you know, you're supposed to be grateful for presents. So I'm like, thank you. My mum stares at the Mars bar in my hand and she starts screaming. And she says, I'm selfish, I'm greedy, I don't care about anybody else. And I look down at the, the present I've opened and it doesn't say Dave, it says Dad. And so it was meant for my stepdad and it was, the kind of, it was supposed to be from my sister to my stepdad, but my mum had obviously instigated that present. My sister was six years younger than me, so she wasn't old enough to buy presents. And my, uh, my mum had put so much into this Mars bar, I guess. This was like a very big symbol to her. It was supposed to sort of sort some stuff out, but I'd opened it. I mean, I didn't know, I couldn't contextualise, I couldn't say all of that stuff when I was eight. But now I'm looking back, that seems to be the case. And she said, you know, you're a horrible, horrible person. You've ruined Christmas. I mean, I'm not shouting as loud as she was shouting. She was shouting very loud. It would hurt your ears if I shouted that loud. Uh, And she said, you've ruined Christmas. She screamed and she slammed the door. She stomped up the stairs and I could hear every single footstep going up the stairs. My stepdad grabbed hold of my arm. And uh, he pushed me back into the Christmas tree. And I can sort of, when I think about this memory, I can still feel the, the needles of the Christmas tree sort of prickling my back. And he said, you've let your mother down. You've ruined this Christmas. And he hit me. And that is what Christmas means to me. But, I mean, it didn't end there, my Christmas experience, and I'll give you a few more. It gets more positive as it goes on, so I'll give you a few more little nuggets throughout the night. But I just wanted to really bring us down at the start of the night before I introduced our first performer, so... (laughs) Our next tragedy performer uh, is Lucy Ayrton. She impressed me so much with her amazing show Lullabies to Make Children Cry. You can find her on Twitter at Lucy Ayrton. She is a spoken word performer and put your hands together for her. Lucy Ayrton, everybody! Hello, everyone. Happy, tragic Christmas to all of you. Um, So I was going to open with a really kind of cute call and response thing where I ask you what's like the worst thing that can happen at Christmas. Um, My answer is different to Dave's. So I'm just going to say what I was looking for. Office Christmas parties. (laughs) Shallow, but I feel there's an essential truth there. Um, Has anyone had an office Christmas party yet this year? Did anything awful happen at any of them? In the past? Is this just me? Do I just work for shit companies? Was there anything really grim happening on the boat to make that worse? Just <laughs> Did you say employees as well there? That's amazing. <laughs> amazing. Okay, well, um, my first ever Christmas party when I was a fresh graduate, really excited... First job in marketing, pretty Christmas party frock, head of finance was sick down my leg. 
And I was like, this is the world of work. I should never have left university. They made me. Um, So I would like to do a poem um, based on my experiences at that job as a whole. It's called Fuck You, Corporate Land. It goes like this. In corporate land, every day is the same. Every day there's a meeting and management claim that last week was a great one because of their skill, but still there's room for improvement with you, so go out and kill them. Knock them dead. Eye of the tiger, roar of the bear, yeah? Every day you'll go back and you'll sit at your desk like the rest of the drones and you'll stare at your phone like an old enemy. Every day you will sing the heartbreaking refrain, hello corporate land, can I help? And you'll give all your tasks about 20%, even though you know full well you're meant to be giving 110 and then you'll worry all day. You'll get found out and sent to the manager's office that's full of the scent of bad coffee and lies and you'll stare at his tie and you'll try not to cry while he tells you he's... I'm really disappointed, Lucy, actually. And you'll want to say, mate, you're disappointed. When I was a little girl, I was going to be the world's first brain surgeon slash rock star. Now my job's to put lies into pie charts. I know you wonder why I come in with toothpaste down me sometimes. It's because I don't really like looking in the mirror. You're disappointed. But you can't, so you smile and say sorry and aren't and think, fuck you, corporate land, because in corporate land, every day there's a fight between you and your head and the you in plain sight while one kicks and she hisses, the other one kisses the ass of corporate land because in corporate land, there's just so much to lose. Underneath you, there's someone who's better than you with her freshly pressed shirt and her nicely shunned shoes and her not really understanding the concept of despair and one day... She'll get you. One day you'll lose, or maybe you'll let her. Maybe you'll choose to say, fuck you, corporate land. Thank you very much. So, um, I was talking to a friend of mine um, earlier who is a lot more street than me, and she says that if you want to do new material and you're a slam poet in America... You go, hey guys, new shit. And then, she really said, I don't know if it's true, but she said this. And then she says, the whole audience goes, yeah, new shit. Um, And she said that I should ask you if that could happen tonight. Because the idea is like, you say that it's a brand new poem and you're feeling really vulnerable about it and it's not going to be amazing. But everyone's like implicit in being really supportive anyway. Um, So let's see if this works in Brixton as well as it does in DC. Allegedly, she could have just been taking the piss. Um, But guys, (laughs) hey, new shit! New shit! Awesome. Okay, awesome. Um, Thank you very much. So this is a poem that I wrote... um, Particularly for stand-up tragedy, it's called Worrying About Santa Claus. I was standing in M&S when it started, looking at pants. Men's pants. And I thought, does my boyfriend need more pants? He hasn't said that he needs pants, but, I mean, surely he does. Surely everybody does, right? So I picked them up and I thought... 
maybe instead of buying them and just giving them to him and saying it was his turn to heat the ready meal up, ha, because I bought him new pants, maybe I'd wrap them up and I'd put a note on them and say that he'd been a really good boyfriend recently, what with all the microwaving of the ready meals, and so he deserved new pants and I'd sign it from the Knicker Ferry. I know that that sounds like a bit of an arse, but I thought that it might inject some sparkle into an otherwise humdum Tuesday. We like whimsy, that's like kind of our thing. So I held these pants, these men's pants, and I could see our whole future stretched out ahead of us, me and him, running out of pants and noticing and creeping down in the night to leave glitter-frosted knickers on the kitchen table. And maybe one day we'd have a kid... We'd leave her pants there as well. And she might not even realise where pants really came from until she was embarrassingly old, like seven or something. And that would give her something really funny to say when they do those icebreaker sessions and they're like, tell us a wacky fact about yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Thought that'd be kind of cool. Um, So there I am, holding these pants, thinking about a little girl that I haven't even decided that I want to try to conceive and I start to worry about Santa Claus because... That whole thing really sounds like a lot of pressure. Um, What if she found out way too young and she hated me for ruining the magic of Christmas? Or what if she found out way too late and she hated me for lying to her and she'd get teased? Um, They say, don't they, that you love kids more than anything. The first time you see them, you get crushed by this massive wave of love and it sweeps everything else away. And I don't understand that. Like, how could I, but... Sometimes when I'm on the bus and behind the kind of baby that smiles with its whole body, I think I can nearly imagine. And I wonder, this kid that I love more than anything, do I really want to lie to her? But there's a difference between lying and stories. I know there's a difference. I still get a stocking, even though I'm 27, because I'm an only child. (laughs) For a few minutes, every Christmas... I really do still believe, but then I never actually asked if Santa was real or not. Is that the trade-off? Truth for magic. I know it sounds like a lot to be worrying about this whole existential Santa thing, but it's easy for me because I'm really, really good at worrying. I can worry about having left the oven on while I'm actually in the act of turning off the oven. And if my period's late, I can simultaneously worry that I might be pregnant and worry that something's wrong and I might not ever be able to have kids. (laughs) Just suppose might be what I'm really worrying about. So anyway, I'm still an M&S. I'm still holding the pants. Thank you very much. Have a lovely evening. Wow, there we go. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's a funny thing. I was talking to a colleague at work about uh, that issue of when do you tell your child whether, whether, whether Santa Claus exists or Father Christmas. Never. Right. I do, I do a letter and everything. I wasn't So, like, if you went up to your mum and said, look, I know, she's still going to, like... Oh, you would have, yeah. But if somebody did, she'd just bluff them. Well, fair enough. Um, but, yeah... <laughs> 
Uh, my, my colleague at work, her decision was, well, she, she, she initially, apparently, when her child was born, she decided to, to, to say Columbo brought the presents. And uh, there, was, there was, like, uh, you know, clues and stuff. Sounds like not a nice thing. And then, and then at a certain point, she decided, well, I'll make it the, uh, the, the, the present fairy. And it was like the, the tooth fairy, but with presents. Uh, and then she sort of said, oh, well, okay, Santa. But then she had to go to the grottos and stuff, and she wasn't very keen on meeting the, the Santa Claus's Father Christmas's in grottos. So then, uh, then uh, she, she told her kid that, that Father Christmas was, was really Jesus. And then she had this really complicated thing of how do you deal with that? And then she's just like, oh, apparently like two weeks ago, she's just like, no, it's just made up. Right? Her kid's six, but she, apparently her kid was fine with that. So there you go. It doesn't always have to be a tragic moment. Uh, so... <laughs> Well, I think one of the problems with Christmas growing up was my mum basically always invited all of her, like, both of her ex-husbands to Christmases. And she couldn't stand those people. And yet we had to all be in that, that, that environment. I remember this, this kind of moment when I, I'd left home and I came back for, my, for, for kind of near to Christmas. Or, in fact, it might have been Christmas, my first Christmas back. I never went back home again after that. Uh, that I just remember the family... Christmas dinner had ended in screaming rows and people storming out and sadness. And uh, I sort of sat incredibly drunk, like, after that, watching Titanic. <laughs> just, just thinking, is this Christmas? Is this Christmas? And then after that, sort of staying up into the night to, to wait to see if, my, to see if the people who'd left was, were going to come back. Uh, and uh, it was sort of like nearly, nearly midnight and uh, I turned on the TV and uh, children were dying in Bethlehem. And that's like one of my really, I really remember that and I'm sure that's going to happen this Christmas. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it happens most Christmases. But it, it kind of, uh, for me, this is, see, the thing is everybody else, like, I don't know, everyone seems to love Christmas but I just find it very triggering. Uh, <laughs> I do. It's not just Christmas I find triggering as well. Like, uh, the, the, the last thing on my thing before I introduce the next act is to tell you about the time when my... Uh, my um, basically, it was, Chris, it was New Year, and uh, my, I brought my, my girlfriend uh, to home, uh, to, to, to Cardiff, where I, where I used to live, and m- me and some friends and her walked out to Castle Koch, Castel uh, Koch, I should say, the Red Castle, which is outside of Cardiff. And uh, we walked for ages in the dark. It was really annoying. Some people fell out. It was like one of those things where it's like, why have we decided to do this? We walked out all the way there. We finally got there for New Year. Just at that point, there was a blazing argument between some people who were in a relationship. And they all ran off into the, into the woods. And I didn't know who was coming back. And at that point, I got a phone call from my mum telling me about my sister was trying to had tried to kill herself and uh, uh, that was New Year that year um, and uh, yeah uh, but the thing that always stands out to me about this is my, my girlfriend uh, who is in the room but I'm not going to draw attention to her because she hates that uh, she's quite a kind of quiet introverted person very kind and pleasant and we'd only sort of been going out for a little while but when my mum rang me up and told me that I had to be at home even though there was absolutely no way for me to travel to, like teleportation had not, has not yet been invented I'm waiting um, and my mum was screaming at me down the phone. Jen took the phone off me, uh, this crying, uh, quivering wreck, and basically told my mum to fuck off. Uh, 
And she doesn't really do that. And it really set her well for the next 13 years of our relationship. Because my mum, she doesn't mess with Jen now. <laughs> so that is kind of a happy Christmas memory, I guess. Uh, so on that, on that tale of tragic, uh, tragic New Year and uh, all of the things that I have mentioned, our next performer uh, is... Richard Tyrone Jones. You can find him at RTJ Poet on Twitter, which is an, an, an easy place to find him. And, and he, he, he tweets regularly, sometimes depressingly, sometimes amusingly, sometimes both. Um, and uh, I'll tell you something, his Radio 4 show marked a big contrast to the show I saw him perform this year in Edinburgh. It's, he's, he's, he has very different sides of him, himself, but he has, he has performed on, he has been on Radio 4, and he's also done something unspeakable, really, in Edinburgh. But it was very... <laughs> the people who know, the people who saw, the, the, yeah, but I'm not going to tell you what it was, because out of context, it just makes him sound like a racist. Um, so, it was very good, though. It was very good. <laughs> this is how I like to introduce people. <laughs> Uh, and he said it's new material that he's going to be doing and uh, it's uh, after his he said after his set uh, heart failure will seem uplifting almost (laughs) so put your hands together for Richard Tyrone Jones I never really uh, believed in the whole concept of Christmas as a kind of redemptive or, or healing uh, time until uh, last Christmas, uh, I always thought well, Christmas uh, that can only be explained by the fact that uh, Santa Claus must be being punished for having once done something incredibly terrible to children. Uh, but uh, no, it it was revealed to me last year. I, I seem to have tried to write a ten-minute story uh, of about my true life experiences and actually written an entire show from which I'm now doing a 10-minute extract. It's November 2012. My mum has early-onset dementia. My dad, a 62-year-old workaholic with Asperger's who for the last 10 years has literally read nothing but the Daily Mail, has reacted to this unconstructively with a descent into screaming madness. We have had the altercation that we should have had when I was a teenager, but after that, he behaved himself almost impeccably for my sister's wedding. It looked as if the medications were working. But a week or so afterwards, at home, he he started doing the pacing Again, chanting like a, a cult member, a stuck novelty record. They're going to put me away! They're going to put me in jail! Referring to his paranoia about an insignificant benefits fraud. And worse, you shouldn't be here! You shouldn't be here! At first, I thought that he meant that I should have left home by now, which I had done. <laughs> or that I shouldn't be there to see him in this state, but soon realised, no, he meant that we, his three children, should never have been born. It had always been my mum who wanted kids, and that explained why Dad had never really paid attention to us. Madness, 
of any kind strips back the layers of propriety. The Russian doll that is the personality to the embryo inside of the raw psyche. My mum's dementia was revealing her essential self to be pleasant, uncomplaining, loving and concerned. Dad's to be one of paranoia and obsessive self-reproach. I was back home between shows in November when he woke me up early in the morning by banging around shouting desperately, Where's the notes? Where's the notes? I was half asleep but roused myself quickly in case this was something bad. It was. Downstairs in his pyjamas and old football manager coat, he'd given up finding the notes and made his way to the back garden, got a garden chair out, then went back into the garage and returned with plastic bags which he was desperately trying to stuff down his throat. I pulled them out as fast as he could. Then I had to stay outside to get mobile reception while I called an ambulance. He came back out with a Stanley knife. I had to disarm him of that before he could cut his own throat in front of me. Then, when he tried to get up again, punch him in the guts and threaten him with a beating to stop him from killing itself. Strange logic. But this time, I actually had no stomach for violence, but I couldn't think of any other way. I had to wait for the police to arrive before the ambulance could respond because there was an alert on the house from the last time he'd done this. And hey presto, when the police arrived, Dad was suddenly reasonably reasonable again. And they persuaded him to go back to the ward. Later, I'd realised that I couldn't remember if I'd patted my dad on the shoulder as he went into the ambulance or, or hugged him after I'd punched and restrained him. I didn't realise then that in what manner I'd touched him would become important. Exhausted and angry, I phoned my granddad, then 90, to come and look after mum and decided that, yeah, I would catch the train I'd booked to the hotel I'd booked in Manchester and would shag the nice 22-year-old girl I'd met up there while touring my show. Should I have gone in the ambulance with my dad, like the police wanted? I still don't think it would have made any difference. Life is a constant series of decisions between spending your life ameliorating present misery or chasing the chance of future happiness, no matter how slim the chance is. And she was a real goer. (laughs) My dad... was in and out of hospital. Under and out from section, I forget how many times. But he could still act normal enough that he was able to duck out through the mental ward security doors behind a visitor, get on a bus to Dudley Town Centre, drink a pint of Guinness in Weatherspoons, ever the scrimper, then return with a knife and try to cut his throat again. Apparently this time he got a formidable scar. The mental hospital was right next to the A&E, so I could tell myself that this was another cry for help, the fourth. I talked to him on the phone and, and told him he didn't have to worry about money or anything. We'd take care of mum to remove the pressure from him. That We loved him. He was even more unresponsive 
than before. But I thought, due to our fractious history, it might be best if I stayed away. He'd never taken any advice from anyone while he was well, except for from the Daily Mail. So if he did recover, it wouldn't be thanks to me. If he didn't, well, I didn't want to remember him as being in a hospital, a huge scar on his neck. I didn't want madness, sadness, to run my life, so I went to Sardinia as I'd planned to flee the darkness of winter. I didn't learn much Italian, just ended up wandering about alone in the off-season, but listening to every single Adam and Joe podcast ever recorded did take my mind off things. On 9th of December, my sister sent me an encouraging picture of the folks decorating the tree. On Monday, the 17th of December, I'd been drinking exclusively, excusably heavily in the youth hostel bar in Cagliari, watching from the sidelines as some locals did traditional singing and dancing with no news being good news. I'd already decided to come back for Christmas, booked my flight for the next day. Then I checked emails. My sister wanted me to phone her. I typed, oh, he's not gone back into the hospital again, has he? You better email me what's happened. She did. It felt like the bottom had fallen out of the world. I thought I was going to be sick. But I didn't. He'd been on weekend release from the hospital due to go back that morning. The section had run out, so he didn't have to, but I'll never know if he knew that. He visited my sister on Sunday and recklessly put his hand in a drain filled with drain and blocker without gloves, but at least he'd wanted to help. He'd quietly watched BBC Sports Personality of the Year with my mum before going to bed. That Monday morning, nurses were supposed to have come round to assess mum's care needs. My sister came round early to meet them and instead found him hanging in the hallway. I imagined him again, again, because I wasn't there. So let's portray him in detail and exhibit so I can finally cut him down. The plastic curtain cord speaks of improvisation, but not snapping. He must have risen early, not manic, planned it. His silk effect pyjamas clean, a small miracle. The 35-year-old banisters held him as he crouched in an impossible position, facing the wall as if weeping, his face grey as his hair, yet peaceful. There would have been kicking, but not enough to wake anyone. I do wonder if he thought about who'd find him dangling like a Christmas decoration, a memory to be brought out every year, every year. My sister had to find the neighbour, go upstairs, wake my mum and make sure she got downstairs to the neighbours without once looking back at him like Lot's wife in reverse. Thankfully, she managed it. 
the ambulance service actually asked her to cut him down with a pair of scissors. Which seems a little insensitive. And given the metal within a plastic cord thing, also ignorant of material sciences. Like I say, it should have been the worst Christmas ever. But it wasn't. Because, if nothing else, Christmas that year was certainly purposeful. My Austrian sister returned and we fell upon administrative tasks with Teutonic gusto. Strange relief from thinking about what had happened. Our Christmas list that year was Spartan. Coroner's report, death certificate, funeral date. But the most important task was to cheer mum up and take her mind off it. In that, well, the dementia helped. But so did Christmas. On Christmas Day, we, me, my Austrian sister, mum, brother-in-law, granddad and me went round to my non-Austrian sisters who cooked the best Christmas meal ever. Roast turkey, Yorkies, cheesy leeks and red cabbage, roasted onion, sweet potato mash and asparagus, neeps and tatties, pigs in a blanket. My sister went a bit crazy. The crackers, hats and fine wines from the cellar. We were determined that this wouldn't defeat us. We sat in the front room, my sister's daft cocker spaniels on my mum's lap. One dressed as a reindeer, the other as Carmen Miranda. Traditional Christmas, you know. (laughs) Of course she cried. My mum's always been lachrymose, but they were good tears. Tears of relief that madness had not spoiled Christmas. The spaniels didn't quite lick them off her cheek, but they could have done. It was... Almost that Dickensian. That we were there to hold her and tell her to imagine Dad had gone to live in Cyprus, where everyone reads nothing but the Daily Mail, <laughs> like he dreamed of doing when he was alive. I wish my dad could have been there, but then I'd spent my whole life wishing he'd been there emotionally. He hadn't been destroyed by his hip replacements, his retirement, his lack of education, or mum's illness. In the end, he'd been destroyed by his lack of empathy, of love, for us, for himself, for life. I often worry, every winter in fact, that I've inherited that. But last Christmas... The love of my family was all that I could ask for. And looking round, I knew that now every member of my family was finally able to give it. Okay, my apologies to Beckhill, who is a comedian and has to come on next and make you laugh after that. But luckily, uh, we've got Dave first. Thank you very much.
Uh, right, well, there we go. There was Richard Tyrant Jones. I'm a bit upset too. So uh, it's going to be interesting to deliver this uh, segue from that to Beck Hill, who is a fantastic comedian. I don't know if she's going to be funny tonight, though. She might not be. She might be deliberately being tragic. So we, we don't know. We may, not, we may not have, have no hope at this point. But that's okay. Because, like I said, there's singing later, sing alongs. So that'll help. That'll help. Uh, yeah, so you can find Beck Hill at uh, BeckHillComedian.com, <laughs> which is also Be Chill Comedian. Uh, she has an m- amazing podcast called Gods of Comedy that I really recommend you checking out, where she uh, has conversations, her and Bridie Lee Kennedy have conversations with comedians about what they believe. And it's really good. Uh, and she also did an amazing show, which made me cry in a very different kind of way than I've been crying tonight, um, at, at the Edinburgh Festival this year called Beck and Tom's Awesome Laundry that really like warmed my heart, made me cry, and my, my eight-year-old niece loved it. So uh, there we go. Maybe that's changed the emotional tone. I don't know. But put your hands together for Beck Hill, everybody! <laughs> Just before I get started, I will say, um, just to lighten the mood a bit beforehand, uh, when I was little, I lived in Hong Kong, and um, my this is my uh, memory of Santa Claus. This isn't part of my set. I just thought it was necessary to tell. Um, my first memory of Santa Claus is seeing my dad hired for a corporate gig um, for his work, actually. He was the only Caucasian in his division in Hong Kong, um, hired to play Santa at their own work Christmas party and I saw him getting ready and from that moment believed that my dad was the Santa and that every kid had to be good to me or they got nothing. Uh, uh, which explains why I was incredibly egotistical as a child. Um, I tried to level it out in my teens and it's coming back out again now as an adult. So um, just all I'm saying is... You don't have to listen to my set, but if you don't, you might not get presents. That's all I'm suggesting. Before I get started, uh, I just thought I'd br- I've brought a, uh, a Christmas cracker. So, um, Lucy, can I pop this Christmas cracker with you? I'm really good at this. Oh, all right, all right, ready? Oh, Lucy, what did you get in your cracker? An origami crane. That's so odd. That reminds me of a story that I wrote specifically for tonight. Strap in. The Bai Fang Handicrafts Factory in the Guangdong province of China was not an evil factory. For factories are mere buildings and therefore incapable of knowingly committing acts of evil. It was no more evil than a pillow fort or the House of Lords. However, it is possible for a building to be possessed by evil, such as a pillow fort run by a villain, or the House of Lords. <laughs> the Bai Fang Handicrafts Factory was possessed by a man called Li Wei. 
though he preferred the Western name he had chosen for himself, Bruce McLean, who he had mistakenly thought was the lead character of Die Hard. And Bruce Leeway McLean was a very evil man indeed. It's difficult to spot evil people these days. In fables and legends, evil usually looked like a witch or a monster. Evil often contorted its vessel to look as deformed and horrific on the outside as it did on the inside. But over time, evil began to take on more accessible shapes and forms. Bruce didn't look evil at all. Quite charming, in fact. His teeth were straight and white. His eyes glistened when he smiled. And his black hair flopped at a dreamy angle that even a young Hugh Grant would envy. If Bruce were cast in a Disney film, he'd definitely look more like the prince than the baddie. But that's the thing about evil. Sometimes it's at its most dangerous when it doesn't appear to be. It was a near impossible task to rate the most evil thing Bruce McLean did. Was it the way he never thanked anyone, even that one time when a homeless man found his wallet and returned it without taking even as much as one yarn from it? Was it how he kicked stray cats whenever he, whenever he was drunk, which he often was? Was it the highly profitable business he ran, which made all its money by using child slaves to assemble cheap Christmas crackers? It was hard to say, but it was probably that last one. Of course, the Baifang Handicrafts Factory hadn't always been run this way. Bruce's original workforce took pride in their jobs. It was the last port of call for all Christmas crackers. Toys, hats and jokes were placed in cardboard rolls, along with cracker snaps and then wrapped in shiny decorative paper before being packed and shipped out all across the world, ready to be sold in December, or even August in some countries. Most business owners would feel a warm glow as they imagined their products being enjoyed by millions of families over dinner. Groans and laughter would erupt as mum read out her joke, even though she stuffed up the delivery on the first attempt. Children would giggle at the way Grandpa's bald head poked out the top of his slightly too large crepe paper crown. Cousins would swap toys and hide them in their knick-knack drawers, only for the collections to be, to be uncovered years later as they prepared to move out and begin college. Most business owners would feel success at these thoughts, but not Bruce. He wanted money. He wanted a cool house, a cool car, and for ladies to hang off him at casinos, like his favourite misremembered character, Sean Bond. <laughs> so he began to cut the wages of his workers. At first, the workers didn't seem to mind. They understood the current economic climate, so they begrudgingly accepted the changes without complaint. But greed breeds greed, and soon Bruce wanted more profit. So he continued to cut their wages until eventually all the employees at the Baifang Handicrafts Factory were forced to move on and find work elsewhere. Suddenly, Bruce found himself in a large, empty factory with a large, empty wallet and an even larger debt. His only choice was to sell the factory. While taking inventory of his machinery one day, Bruce spotted something in the corner by a pile of rags. It was a small, delicate paper crane, which had been crafted from some of the shiny decorative paper, as he picked it up, the rags began to move and took the form of a young girl, no older than seven or eight. She was sleeping. He kicked her hard because he was drunk, as he often was. The girl jumped and steadied herself, calculating whether it would be best to run or fight. What are you doing in my factory? demanded Bruce. The girl slightly relaxed her position while her eyes remained alert and cautious. 
I'm sorry, I was tired and needed shelter. I'll leave now. Thank you for your hospitality. Bruce was surprised at her manners and gratefulness given that he had just kicked her. Who are you? Where are your parents? He asked. I'm Luli. I have no parents. I was abandoned as a baby, she replied. How have you come to live this long? Asked Bruce. I've been blessed with instincts, said Luli. All my life I've known when to run, when to hide, when to hunt and when to work. As soon as the word work escaped Luli's lips, an idea exploded in Bruce's head like one of his crackers. You work? He asked. His eyes glistened and his brain cogs turned. I tell you what, how might I let you continue to shelter in my factory at night if you work for me during the day? It was true Lily had been blessed with instincts, but sadly her hunger and exhaustion overrode them on this one occasion. Had she listened to her instincts, she would have noticed the slightly off angle of Bruce's smile. She would have asked why the factory was empty. She would have seen that her fragile paper paper crane had been crushed in his fist to be cast away like the rubbish he saw it as. But she was so tired and it had been so long since anyone had offered her anything. So she, so she chose to ignore all the warnings and assume Bruce was acting out of kindness. Every person experiences one major crossroad in their life. Were Bruce a good man, he would have seen this as an opportunity to give something back to the world he'd so greedily taken from. But, as we established earlier, Bruce was evil. And so, having hatched a plan and an evil one at that, he chose his path and thus his destiny. Scraping together what little money he had left, he sent ten messengers to a thousand villages where they offered Bruce's discreet services to families who found themselves in unfortunate ownership of an undesirable daughter. Either the girls weren't smart enough, weren't good-looking enough, or weren't, well, male enough. In these instances, Bruce would offer to take the girls off the hands of the parents, allowing them to try for another, better-looking, more male child for a small fee. Of course, in most villages, Bruce services were not required. The majority of parents loved their child, despite smarts, looks or gender, and on more than one occasion, his messengers were chased out of town for even suggesting their perfect daughters were unwanted. But Bruce only needed about 60 girls. In a country of over one billion people, his task was less impossible than it seemed. Within a few months, a full workforce of rejected girls had been donated to Bruce, His plan had worked perfectly. He allowed them to sleep on the factory floor in return for 18-hour payless workdays seven days a week. The girls were expected to fill an array of jobs, from cleaning Bruce's house to cooking his meals and even mixing his drinks. Every afternoon, he would watch an action movie while gulping down martinis. Shaken, not turd, he would loudly mispronounce, or shoving his glass in the direction of one of the girls and kicking a stray cat he kept in his office for the sole purpose of kicking. But their least favourite job was when he made them rub his feet. Bruce's feet were the opposite of his face, not just in terms of location on his body, but in appearance. It was as if all of Bruce's evil had drained from his handsomely shaped head and pulled around his toes, and then he'd stepped in a dog's business and walked barefoot through the offcuts at a barber shop. The worst part was that the smell would attach itself to whoever touched his feet. Girls often lay awake all night despite their exhaustion just because they could smell Bruce's feet on their hands. But the girls rarely complained. If they did, he whipped them with a bamboo stick or worse, he threatened to throw them out. 
With no savings or family to return to, the girls had no choice. They couldn't go to the authorities as Bruce regularly paid them off to overlook his practices. But despite the sadness which, hang within the, which hung within the building, the Baifang Handicrafts Factory was back up and running and more productive and profitable than ever. Now, the nice thing about the world is how often it finds a way to balance itself out. For amongst his slaves, Bruce had unwittingly put together a group far, capable of far more good than he was evil. As previously mentioned, Luli had been blessed with usually very good instincts, but she'd also been blessed with the rather magical ability of creating the most beautiful and intricate paper art. She'd been taught by a kind Japanese sailor while working for a fisherman in a seaside town. She was only five at the time, but her hands were precise and fast, so she managed to temporarily make a living by fixing nets. The Japanese sailor did not like to see such a young girl working. He had a daughter back home, and it made him sad to imagine her in the same position. But he couldn't take Luli with him, so one evening, when the fishing boats had gone out, he sat on the shore with her and watched the sun go down. He explained that when he was little, his grandmother used to make make him paper cranes and give them to him for luck. He opened his satchel and took out a perfect little paper crane. He cupped it tight in her hands. This is for luck, he explained. But he opened up his hands to reveal the crane had become crumpled and disfigured. Sometimes our luck runs out. He took a piece of paper out of his satchel and began to fold it. That is when we must learn to make our own. Luli had been making her own luck ever since. Using whatever paper she found, she would fold and cut and create incredible creatures, objects and scenes. It had become a good way of distracting herself from the hunger or the cold or whatever obstacles life continued to throw at her. There was also Ying. Ying was the oldest girl of the group at 12. She saw her age as a responsibility to the others and was usually on call having to kiss better any small injuries or bandage up the more serious ones, which was more often than you would expect in a Christmas cracker factory. She was the only girl who'd attended school before her parents gave her up and, as a result, was the only girl who could properly read and write. She would spend the early hours of each day writing short stories before work and she would spend the evenings reading them to the youngest girls just before bed. Her stories were always full of adventure and wonder and brave characters, but the best part about them was how they all ended with the heroes going home to their loving families. It wasn't long until the other girls wanted to learn how to read and write so they could come up with their own stories too, and that was how Ying found herself not only packing joke slips into cardboard rolls, but also teaching on the side. And then there was May. She was also blessed. Through a happy set of coincidences involving a broken conveyor belt and a lot of head scratching, she realised she could fix nearly any machine she put her hands to. Each time something stopped working, she would come over and click her tongue while lifting up flaps, pushing cogs and poking wires. Then, after some time, she would nod slowly while chewing the inside of her cheek, which meant she'd worked out the problem. She would then drop to her hands and knees and crawl throughout the factory, collecting metallic bits and bobs and creating makeshift parts and tools from an assortment of leftovers and tiny plastic Christmas cracker toys. Once May worked out how to fix everything in the factory, she started making her own things. Clockwork frogs from empty food tins some of the girls had fished out of Bruce's rubbish. Dragons moulded from discarded cigarette lighters which breathed real fire. And once, 
a tiny battery-operated car, no bigger than a sugar cube, which she'd managed to construct from a partially destroyed watch found on the driveway outside. May's talent meant that every girl received a special gift on her birthday. Luli, Ying and May worked next to each other on the assembly line. Cardboard rolls would shoot down the conveyor belt and quick as a flash, Luli would insert a party hat, Ying a joke and May the toy. Once Ying had bravely tried to draw worldwide attention to their situation by inserting a piece of paper which said, Help! I'm trapped in a Christmas cracker sweatshop! But the cracker had been opened at a Christmas in July party in Brooklyn, New York, where the recipient just thought the hipster host was doing one of his ironic jokes again and she didn't mention it, not wanting to give him the satisfaction. (laughs) Meanwhile, as the girls grew together in their talents and friendship... Bruce McLean proceeded to grow in arrogance and gluttony, with the costs of running his factory being minimal at most and the quality of production being maximum at least, Bruce had found himself with a lot of disposable income. He'd bought a cool house and a cool car and he hung out at casinos. However, that was where the similarities between him and Sean Bond ended. His audaciousness bordered on foolishness. He would lose exceedingly large amounts of money at the blackjack table, not even while playing. He just had a bad habit of keeping loose cash on him, which would fall out of his pocket whenever he fished out his hip flask, which was often. The false confidence his newfound fortune provided had also made him conceited, so any woman who dared showed an interest in him was immediately dismissed as not good enough. Any pangs of loneliness or guilt were immediately remedied by a steady supply of action films, martinis and foot rubs from his child slaves. On one particularly long and arduous afternoon, while Lily stuffed paper crowds into cardboard tubes with the precision and speed of a heart surgeon on their eighth Red Bull for the day, she felt something she'd not experienced for quite some time. An instinct. She paused and looked up, narrowing her eyes. Ying and May noticed the missing hats in their cardboard rolls. What's wrong, Lily? asked Ying. I'm not sure. Something's not right. It's too... It's too quiet, said Luli. And she was right. By now, Bruce would have stepped out onto the internal balcony extending from his upper-level office and demanded one of the girls come rub his feet. It was usually the first thing he wanted after his lunchtime martini. Should we investigate, said May nervously. They'd never gone into Bruce's office uninvited before. Once, Bruce had caught one of the girls using his bathroom because she didn't want to have an accident on on the floor. And he'd whipped her mercilessly across the back of her thighs so that she couldn't sit down for two weeks, never mind on the toilet. None of the girls fancied that idea. I'll go, said Luli, gulping. She couldn't ignore her instinct again, not after what happened last time. We'll come too, said Ying. May nodded. The three girls climbed the stairwell up to Bruce's office and gently tapped on the door. Mr McLean, whispered Luli. Mr. McLean, did you want your foot rub? She asked, slightly louder. Nothing. Mr. McLean, I just need to check the books, said Ying as she opened the door, preparing herself for a whipping. But none of them had quite prepared themselves enough for what they would face. Bruce McLean wasn't wearing any trousers. Or a shirt. He was in his boxer shorts and vest. And he was dead. Bruce often undressed after lunch. He found his rich, excessive meals gave him the sweat, so he was usually more comfortable just to watch his afternoon movies in his underwear. However, he didn't usually watch the movies from the floor. 
or with a big purple face. Had Bruce thought to at least give the girls some first aid training, they would have known to clear his windpipe, remove the olive, which had been lodged there from a reckless martini gulp, and begin CPR. Had they been taught how to resuscitate, Bruce would have survived to continue his tyranny. But they hadn't, so he didn't. Every person experiences one major crossroad in their life. Were Luli, Ying and May naive girls, they would have reported Bruce's death to the corrupt local authorities, who would have assumed the girls had killed him in revenge and had them jailed for life. But, as we established earlier, Luli, Ying and May were blessed. And so, having hatched a plan, and a good one at that, they chose their path and thus their destiny. Now, I have a machine gun. Ho... Ho, ho, read out Alan Rickman on the flat screen television mounted on the wall of Bruce's office. Had any of them seen Die Hard the whole way through, they would have realised how cool that timing was. But they hadn't. (laughs) So they didn't. With Bruce gone, the girls began running the factory to their liking, which meant ceasing business for one week. During this time, the company went through a rather sudden revamp, When the Bai Fang Handicrafts Factory reopened, it specialised in luxury handmade Christmas crackers. Each luxury handmade Christmas cracker contained a beautifully intricate piece of paper art, a short story, and a carefully assembled toy made from recycled parts from the local scrapyard. Every artwork, story and toy was put together by one of the girls under the supervision of Luli, Ying and Mei. And finally, just before the rolls were wrapped in their shiny decorative paper, Luli would, would insert a small, delicate paper crane she had personally made into every cracker. For good luck, of course. The crackers became famous worldwide and highly in demand. Every celebrity simply had to have one for their Christmas party. Packs of six would sell for thousands of US dollars, and you wouldn't be surprised to see them fetching even more on eBay as it drew closer to December 25. With all the money, Luli, Ying and May were able to extend the factory to include a separate bedroom and a proper bed for every girl. They even built an ensuite for the little girl whose thighs had been whipped. Every girl was given a generous weekly allowance and a proper wage, which went into a savings fund from when they turned 18. Teachers were hired to live at the factory where they tutored the girls in everything from language to maths to science to philosophy to sports and music. As the girls learnt, they uncovered more and more of their talents – The factory began to turn out child prodigies in the forms of musicians, chefs and scientists who became just as, if not more so, successful as its Christmas crackers. Now, you might be wondering what happened to the deceased Bruce McLean. Well, like the girls, he had no family. Whether this was because he was evil or was what had caused him to become evil, no one will ever know. Unlike the girls, he certainly never made his own family. And so, when he died, no one really noticed. Some of his previous business contacts are thought to ask when the factory suddenly changed, but in all honesty, they didn't care. The only act of kindness Bruce McLean ever performed was when his body provided much-needed nutrition to the stray cats who loitered around the factory. (laughs) On Christmas Day that year, in the Guangdong province of China, a group of blessed girls in a factory sat down to their first of many celebratory feasts. On the same day, a guest in Brooklyn, New York, politely declined to kiss the hipster host under the mistletoe, even though he insisted it was ironic. And in a loving home, 
in Yokohama, Japan, a kind sailor snapped a Christmas cracker with his young daughter and was delighted to find a small, delicate paper crane. Thank you very much. Let's share a couple more of the more positive, or not positive, but funny, uh, maybe, uh, moments of my Christmas experiences through the years. So uh, the first Christmas that uh, I was with my girlfriend, Jen, who I mentioned earlier on, the present that my mum bought for Jen uh, that Christmas that we opened, uh, did we open it in front of her? Thank God. Uh, the present she brought, my new girlfriend, I was, what, uh, 19? Jen was 18, we were, but young, young people. Uh, she bought her some chocolate body paint and a flesh-coloured thong. <laughs> now, leaving aside the fact that a flesh-coloured thong is a problematic thing in terms of uh, race, uh, <laughs> it's an inappropriate thing to buy your son's girlfriend the first, like, she didn't even know, like, it's, it's just very weird. Uh, so there you go. That's a little moment for my Christmas past. I've got loads more, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip some of them for time. Our next performer is James Mackay. I've started saying his name right these days. For years I didn't. <laughs> www.mackaypoetry.com. Uh, you can find him. He's a man who has a snuffkin tattoo and as a man who's wearing a snuffkin t-shirt, I can appreciate the fuck out of that. Uh, and uh, he had an, a brilliant Edinburgh show uh, where he did Victorian recitals. He's a, an amazing reciter and poet. Put your hands together for James Mackay! So, Christmas... It's all about the kiddies, isn't it? Uh, and so I'm going to read you a children's story. Uh, a lot of kiddies are going to be getting storybooks for Christmas on Christmas morning, and they're going to be really disappointed. Uh, but in Victorian times, they might well have had a copy, and this is a genuine book. It's a genuine story that I'm going to read you from a book published in 1882 called The Anyhow Stories. Uh, if you got this for Christmas, they'd be more than disappointed. They'd be fucking traumatised. If you tried reading this to small children nowadays, the social would be informed within... A matter of seconds. I'm not going to read you the whole thing. I'm going to top and tailor. I'm going to give you the setup and give you the punchline. But you need to be comfortable. Is everyone sitting comfortably? Yes. Shall we begin? It's called The New Mother. The children were always called Blue Eyes and the Turkey. The elder one was like her dear father who was far away at sea. For the father had the bluest of blue eyes and so gradually his little girl came to be called after them. The younger one had once, while she was still almost a baby, cried bitterly because a turkey that lived near the cottage suddenly vanished in the middle of the winter, and to console her, she was called by its name. Now, the mother and blue eyes and the turkey and the baby all lived in a lonely cottage on the edge of the forest. It was a long way to the village, nearly a mile and a half, and the mother had to work hard and had not time to go often herself to see if there was a letter at the post office from the dear father. And so very often in the afternoon, she used to send the two children. When they came back tired with the long walk, there would be the mother and the tea would be ready. And if by any chance there was a letter from the sea, then they were happy indeed. 
The cottage room was so cosy, the walls were white as snow, inside as well as out. Dear children, said the mother one afternoon late in the autumn, it is very chilly for you to go to the village, but you must walk quickly, and who knows but what you may bring back a letter, saying that the dear father is already on his way back to England. Don't be long, the mother said, as she always did. Go the nearest way, and don't look at any strangers you meet, and be sure you do not talk to them. No, mother, they answered, and they joyfully started on their way. The village was gayer than usual, for there had been a fair the day before. It's a highbrow audience, this. Oh I, oh, I do wish we had been here yesterday, Blue Eyes said, as they went on to the post office. The postmistress was very busy and just said, no letter for you today. Then Blue Eyes and the turkey turned away to go home. They had left the village and walked some way, and then they noticed, resting against a pile of stones by the wayside, a strange, wild-looking girl who seemed to be about 15 years old. She was dressed in very ragged clothes. Her hair was coal black and hung down uncombed and unfastened. She had something hidden under her shawl. On seeing them coming towards her, she carefully put it under her and sat upon it. She sat watching the children approach and did not move or stir till they were within a yard of her. Then she wiped her eyes just as if she'd been crying bitterly and looked up. The children stood still in front of her for a moment, staring. Perhaps you have lost yourself, they said gently, but the girl answered promptly, certainly not. Why, you have just found me. Besides, she added, I live in the village. The children were surprised at this, for they had never seen her before. Then the turkey, who had an inquiring mind, put a question. What are you sitting on, she asked. On a pear drum. She answered. What is a pear drum? They asked. I am surprised at your not knowing, the girl answered. Most people in good society have one. And then she pulled it out and showed it to them. It was a curious instrument. A good deal like a guitar in shape. It had three strings but only two pegs by which to tune them. But the strange thing about the pear drum was not the music it made, but a little square box attached to one side. Where did you get it? The children asked. I bought it, the girl answered. Didn't it cost a great deal of money, they asked. Yes, answered the girl slowly. I am very rich, she added. You don't look rich, they said. Perhaps not, the girl answered cheerfully. At this, the children gathered courage and ventured to remark, you look rather shabby. Indeed, said the girl. A little shabbiness is very respectable, she added. I really must tell them this, she continued, and the children wondered what she meant. She opened the little box by the side of the pear drum and said, just as if she were speaking to someone who could hear her, they say I look rather shabby. It's quite lucky, isn't it? Why, you are not speaking to anyone, they said. Oh, dear, yes, she said. I am speaking to them both. Both? They said, wondering, yes, I have here a little man dressed as a peasant and a little woman to match. I put them on the lid of the box and when I play, they dance most beautifully. Oh, let us see, do let us see, the children cried. Then the village girl looked at them doubtfully. Let you see, she said. Well, I'm not sure that I can. Tell me, are you good? 
Yes, yes, they answered eagerly. We are very good. Then it's quite impossible, she answered. I only show them to naughty children. And the worse the children, the better the man and woman dance. She put the pear drum carefully under her ragged cloak and prepared to go on her way. I really could not have believed that you were good, she said reproachfully. Well, good day. Oh, but we will be naughty, they said in despair. I'm afraid you couldn't, she answered, shaking her head. It requires a great deal of skill to be naughty well. That's true. And swiftly she walked away while the children felt their eyes filled with tears. If only we had been naughty, they said. We should have seen them dance. Suppose, said the turkey, we try to be naughty today. Perhaps she would let us see them tomorrow. But oh, said Blue Eyes, I don't know how to be naughty. The turkey thought a few minutes in silence. I think I can be naughty <laughs> if I try. She said, I'll try tonight. Oh, don't be naughty without me, she cried. You know I want to see the little man and woman just as much as you do. And so, quarrelling and crying, they reached their home. Now, when their mother saw them, she was greatly astonished and fearing they were hurt, ran to meet them. Oh, my dear, dear children, she said, what is the matter? But they did not dare tell their mother about the village girl and the pear drum and the little man and woman. So they answered, nothing is the matter, and cried all the more. Poor children. The mother said to herself, they are tired and perhaps they are hungry. After tea, they will be better. And she put the kettle on to boil and set the tea things on the table. Then she went to the little cupboard and took out some bread and said, dear little children, come and have your tea. Come, children, the mother said again. Here is nice sweet bread for tea. Then suddenly she looked up and saw that the turkey's eyes were full of tears. Turkey, she exclaimed, my dear little turkey, what is the matter? Come to mother, my sweet. And she held out her arms and Turkey ran swiftly into them. Oh, mother, she sobbed. Oh, dear mother, if we were very, very naughty and wouldn't be good, what then? Then, said the mother sadly, then, she said, I should have to go away and leave you and to send home a new mother with glass eyes. And a wooden tail. <laughs> well, I'm going to skip a bit in the middle of this story now. If you want to hold the real thing, I, I, I have got a recording of this and be doing it, which I'm going to put up. So do check the blog. It does go on a little bit, but you can you can kind of guess what happens uh, in the middle bit. But the, we're, we're getting to the punchline now. This is the bit that's guaranteed to traumatise people. <laughs> Then, after several attempts to be naughty and not being naughty enough, and it all goes on and on, then the children went home and were, oh, so very, very naughty that the dear mother's heart ached and her eyes filled with tears. And at last, she went upstairs and slowly put on her best gown and her new sunbonnet. And she dressed the baby up in its, all its Sunday clothes and then she came down and stood before Blue Eyes and the turkey and just as she did, the turkey threw the looking glass out the window and it fell with a loud crash upon the ground. Goodbye, my children, the mother said sadly, kissing them. The new mother will be home presently. Oh, my poor children. And then weeping bitterly, the mother took the baby in her arms and turned to leave the house. 
Just by the corner of the fields, she stopped and turned and waved her handkerchief, all wet with tears, to the children at the window. She made the baby kiss his hand, and in a moment, mother and baby had vanished from sight. Then the children felt their hearts ache with sorrow, and they cried bitterly, and yet they could not believe that she had gone. And the broken clock struck eleven, and suddenly there was a sound, a quick, clanging, jangling sound. They rushed to the open window, and there they saw the village girl dancing along and playing as she did so. We have done all you told us, the children called. Come and see, and now show us the little man and woman. The girl did not cease her playing or her dancing, but she called out in a voice that was half speaking, half singing. You did it all badly. You threw the water on the wrong side of the fire. The clock wasn't broken enough. You did not stand the baby on its head. She was already passing the cottage. She did not stop singing. And all she said sounded like part of a terrible song. I am going to my own land, the girls sang, to the land where I was born. But our mother is gone, the children cried. Our dear mother, will she ever come back? No sang the girl. She'll never come back. She took a boat upon the river. She is sailing to the sea. She will meet your father once again and they will go sailing on. Then the girl, her voice getting fainter and fainter in the distance, called out once more to them. Your new mother is coming. She is already on her way, but she only walks slowly for her tail is rather long. And her spectacles are left behind, but she is coming. She is coming. 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 The last word died away. It was the last one they ever heard the village girl utter. Then the children turned and looked at each other and at the little cottage home that only a week before had been so cosy and spotless. The fire was out the clock all broken and spoiled. And there was the baby's high chair with no baby to sit in it. There was the cupboard on the wall and never a sweet loaf on its shelf. And there were the broken mugs and the bits of bread tossed about and the greasy boards which the mother had knelt down to scrub until they were white as snow. In the midst of all stood the children, looking at the wreck they had made with their poor little hands clasped in misery. I don't know what I shall do if the new mother comes, cried Blue Eyes. The turkey stopped crying for a minute to think what should be done. We will bolt the door and shut the window and we won't take any notice when she knocks. All through the afternoon they sat watching and listening for fear of the new mother. But they saw and heard nothing of her and gradually they became less and less afraid. They fetched a pail of water and washed the floor. They picked up the broken mugs and made the room as neat as they could. There was no sweet loaf to put on the table, but perhaps the mother would bring something from the village, they thought. At last, all was ready, and Blue Eyes and the turkey washed their faces and their hands, and then sat and waited. Suddenly, while they were sitting by the fire, they heard a sound as of something heavy, being dragged along the ground outside. And then there was a loud and terrible knocking at the door. The children felt their hearts stand still. They knew it could not be their own mother, for she would have turned the handle and tried to come in without any knocking at all. 
Again there came a loud and terrible knocking. She'll break the door down if she knocks so hard, cried Blue Eyes. Go and put your back to it, whispered the turkey, and I'll peep out of the window and try to see if it is really the new mother. So in fear and trembling, Blue Eyes put her back against the door, and the turkey went to the window. She could just see a black satin bonnet with a frill around the edge and a long bony arm carrying a black leather bag. From beneath the bonnet there flashed a strange bright light and Turkey's heart sank and her cheeks turned pale for she knew it was the flashing of two glass eyes. It is, it is, it is, she whispered. It is the new mother. Together they stood with their two little backs against the door. There was a long pause. They thought perhaps the new mother had made up her mind that there was no one at home to let her in and would go away. But presently, the two children heard through the thin wooden door the new mother move a little and then say to herself, I must break the door open with my tail. For one terrible moment all was still but in it the children could almost hear her lift up her tail and then with a fearful blow the little painted door cracked and splintered with a shriek the children darted from the spot and fled through the cottage and out the back door into the forest beyond all night long they stayed in the darkness and the cold and all the next day and the next and all through the cold dreary days and the long dark nights that followed They are there still, my children. All through the long weeks and months they have been there with only green rushes for their pillows and only the brown dead leaves to cover them, feeding on the wild strawberries in the summer, on the blackberries when they are no longer sour in the autumn and in the winter, on the little red berries that ripen in the snow. They wander about among the tall dark firs or beneath the great trees beyond. Sometimes... They stay to rest beside the little pool near the cops and they long and long with a longing that is greater than words can say to see their own dear mother again, just once again, to tell her they'll be good forevermore, just once again. And still the new mother stays in the little cottage, but the windows are closed and the doors are shut and no one knows what the inside looks like. Now and then, When the darkness has fallen and the night is still, hand in hand, blue eyes and the turkey creep up near the home in which they were once so happy, and with beating hearts they watch and listen. Sometimes a blinding flash comes through the window and they know it is the light from the new mother's glass eyes, or they hear a strange muffled noise and they know it is the sound of her wooden tail as she drags it along the floor. Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, wow. I wouldn't leave you all on that. So we're going to do a song. Now, the thing is about Christmas. Yeah, sure, I've had some tragic ones. And, and, no, and, you know, other people in the room have had even more tragic ones than mine. But we're going to do a song. Uh, this is the chorus. I'm going to start with the chorus. Uh, but every time the chorus happens after that, um, hopefully you guys will sing along. It's a pretty simple song. Now, the thing is, 
I had some tragic Christmases, but then uh, I had some children in my life, and then I wanted to write a song for them about Christmas. So this isn't a sad song, it's a happy song, kind of. About what I think Christmas should be about, I guess. Being nice. Why do you have to be so nice? Why do you have to be so nice? Because Santa Claus is coming tonight. He's the one who makes everything all right. All of the leaves on the trees are covered in ice And the street lights bathe the snow in their light The ice makes him faster as he flies through the night Yeah, he sees all the chimneys by their street lights Why do you have to... All together now so nice yeah why do you have to be so nice because Santa Claus is coming tonight he's the one who makes everything all right Santa. 
I don't believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in Santa This podcast has been produced by me and put together by me with sound production from Stephen Harvey with some interviews and some extra production from Bryony Hawkins with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton and The Reactionaries. <laughs>